0: filled with images of despair and violence. And then this morning, his body found at home another casualty of success. And so, my fellow Americans,
1: ask not what your country can do for you.
0: Ask what you can do for your country. All of you chums are going to bow when I with him. All of you, I know you got him. I know you got him, Dick. But the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. People have got to know Whether or not their
1: president's a crook, well, I'm not a crook. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dead Icons podcast. I'm Sean, and today we are diving deep into the life of one of the most controversial leaders of the civil rights movement. To his followers, Malik El Shabazz, better known as Malcolm X, was an almost messianic figure, someone who stood up to and fought back against the bitter hatred and oppression experienced and endured by the African-American community in a way that hadn't been seen before. His preaching of self-defense and self-love were messages that went very much against the mainstream at the time, even the mainstream civil rights movement. However, to his detractors, Malcolm X was a figure who promoted hate and who further aggravated the already fraught racial tensions within America at the time. But which opinion is closer to the truth? And should he really be considered an icon? To find the answer, I am joined by a man who was recently named on BBC One Extra's Future Figures, Making Black History Now, and the host of the Engaging with Eric podcast. So I'd like give a big welcome to Mr. Eric Ahigi. Eric, welcome to the podcast.
0: Uh, Thank you so much, Sean. It's such a pleasure to be on.
1: Eric is, of course, uh, the other half of the political and correctors. We already had Luke on for the Michael Collins episode. Um, Mm. So, Eric, I suppose we'll get straight into it. What do you think was, what was your first uh, memory or the first time you came across Malcolm X?
0: Oh, good question, Sean. Um, Well, for me personally, uh, Malcolm X throughout my childhood was always a massive figure. Uh, My mom was very much a Pan-Africanist, so she steeped me from a very young age in sort of Pan-Africanist literature. And uh, I was revealed to figures such as Marcus Garvey, who uh, played an instrumental role in Malcolm X's life early on. His father was, um, um, I I believe, a minister who, not not necessarily a religious minister, but more of an activist per se, a Pan-Africanist activist who looked up to Garvey. So I was revealed to figures like Garvey, and naturally following from, um, let's say, political leaders like Garvey, Malcolm X uh, came into the fold when I was young, too. So he's always played an instrumental role in my life. And uh, I think impacted me in very positive ways, uh, in ways that are very similar to how he impacted a lot of black Americans generally, in terms of pride and belief in self and self-assertiveness um, and self-affirmation. So this is the the kind of role he played in my life. And and today, of course, his legacy looms on and looms large. So I'm still very invested in him uh, and in everything that he did.
1: Yeah, and I actually, to be honest, my first time coming across him was probably the three-day-long debate myself and yourself had when we first started talking <laughs> about two years ago. I think you were probably the first person to, uh, to introduce me to him. And I won't lie, my first time listening and watching some of his stuff, I was a bit like, uh, I don't know, I don't know. But he has certainly grown on me. He's certainly um, grown to be somebody who I, find, who I respect. Uh, greatly. So I suppose we'll start into it. He was born Malcolm Little on the 19th of May 1925 in mm. Omaha, Nebraska, to, as you already mentioned, um, mm. Earl Little and Louise Helen Little. And he was the fourth of seven children. Mm. Now, it was quite an interesting family they had. They were both uh, both parents were, uh, what was it pan africanists Is that the term that you used? And uh, followers of Garvey as well, I believe.
0: Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and... go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say there, sorry for interrupting you. And as we stated previously, that played a huge role in kind of shaping his own political philosophy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think when you look at his, we'll get into it in a second, you look at his childhood, that played a massive role as well, I think, because um, the family were forced to move around quite a lot Um Earl Little was a very a very outspoken man and received a lot of negative attention, I suppose, from the the KKK as a result of it. I think at the age of four, um, mm. their house was burned down, yeah, by the KKK. And then, of course, I think when he was about twelve, his father was murdered. Sorry, at age six, his father was killed in what was <coughs> deemed a suicide, but what. I think a lot of people believe to
0: have been foul play. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, uh, I don't think Malcolm ever believed it was a suicide. Uh, In his autobiography, I think the connotations of how he documents what happened to his father indicate that he believed that it was the um, racists and the Ku Klux Klan possibly and the different legions and groups that existed, the sort of white supremacist groups in his region, who definitely had it out for his father in the first place. He believes that it was possibly them and probably them who killed his father. So, uh, as you said earlier, uh, Garvey, as we both said, Garvey, of course, influences his philosophy, but little nuggets like this in his experiential um, um, life, um, growing up as a young person, definitely going to shape the Malcolm X that we come to know in the future.
1: Absolutely. And as we see then, following his father's death, one of the insurance companies, um his father had a very—I think he had two insurance policies. One for I think about two grand, and another for I think in the region of between ten and fifteen. So a lot more money, and the 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 bigger insurance policy refused to pay out because they believed that Earl had taken or Earl had committed suicide, which obviously was a violation of um, the insurance policy. Mm. And so straight away already we can kind of see. Um, his family has been put into an even worse position financially, and it 's completely at the hands of white people surrounding him mm. um, and then when we see later on this this all this kind of leads to his mother um you know an increase in stress on his mother who in one thousand nine hundred and thirty eight was uh, sent to a mental institute after suffering a breakdown mm. and that family is um Malcolm's family is then separated by social care workers. And I think, what was it he said about it, that if ever a if ever the state destroyed a family, it destroyed ours.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And um, uh, as, as we kind of touched on there, as you touched on there, his interpretation of this at the time, maybe not so much at the time, but later in his life was that, um, you know, the state white people around him, uh, their ambitions, their their motives towards him anyways as a black person uh, are nothing but negative, are filled with the utmost of Eva. Um So again, um, another very instrumental moment in his childhood that come to, that act as uh, shaping mechanisms that put together how he approaches and navigates society politically in the future. So this is another very important point not to overlook.
1: Yeah. And if you want to read them, the, the next few points there.
0: Of course. So, um, you know, the kids within the little household were split up, uh, and sent to various foster homes and or- orphanages. Um, and a- as I've stated there uh, continuously, it's very important to to note that the troubles that Malcolm faced early in his life, caused by white people, um, especially when it comes to splitting up his family, um, they really shape how he sees wider American society, uh, and how he conceptualizes the society around him. Um, he attended high school, um, but he left before gr- graduation. So Malcolm X attended high school, and he was quite popular in his in his uh, class. Actually, he was um, in his autobiography. He writes about how he was that person that people could sort of speak to. He was quite sociable. He got on with everyone around him, including the white students. I actually believe he was the only black person in his class. So uh, he he really got on with everyone around him, despite yeah, he he, described, he kind
1: of describes it there. Sorry to interrupt you, but he kind of describes that he almost became. You know, at, looking back, he describes he felt he became like the class pet, which, mm. you know, I, I think is really telling of, the, of, ex- of exactly how he, what's the word, the way he felt about himself within this mm. basically all white classroom. And then, mm. of course, what hap- goes on to happen with, I think, was supposedly his favorite teacher.
0: Mm-hmm. which is
1: portrayed brilliantly in the movie where his teacher basically tells him that becoming a lawyer is is no realistic goal for a black person at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's important you note how he, he felt he was a class pet because it speaks to the con- condescension and patronization that exists in that environment where the social interactions are taking place between he, himself and many other people around him, but... He may not be acting um, uh, with the utmost com- of com- confidence because he feels he can't. And there's still that air and aura of, uh, again, patronization that exists in the room that he maybe has to live up to and speak to through his actions to fit in. And I think this is very reflective of the experiences of a lot of people who are minoritized in particular spaces. They feel they have to leave their skin or leave themselves to meet the moment, moment the moment created by yeah, others. Absolutely. Um, and yes, the, the point regarding his teacher, very important to remember that, especially with in, in terms of the following years uh, of Malcolm X's life, he was told by his teacher um, that he cannot be a lawyer because he's black. And I think one of the cruel tragedies of the discrimination that took place in America was that a lot of statements and beliefs of this kind were made about black people because they were black. And this is an uncontrollable characteristic. You simply can't change it. You live with it from the morning you're born, born to the morning you pass away. This is the the blessing of risk um, and to instill that in the mind of a child so early when he looks up to you uh, can have really bad consequences for that child.
1: Oh, massively and the way he kind of puts it forward in both the way it's kind of put forward in both the you know his own autobiography and then the Spike Lee movie is that this was kind of the turning point for him in school. This was... Mm the point where he kind of realizes, I really don't have a future in school. Mm. Mm. Um, But he then goes on to, um, he moved, live with his half sister in Boston at the age of 14 and had a variety of jobs. After this though, he moves to Harlem and this is kind of when things start to go downhill for young Mm. Malcolm.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, so in in Boston, he stayed with his sister, I believe his sister's name was Ella. Uh, She was very kind to him, catered to him. Um and you know treated to him as a big sister would took care of him and yeah. eventually as you said he moved to Harlem uh New York and yes this is when he connected with the underworld and um the uh, the world of a nefarious activity um you know there was a lot of drug dealing that he partook in racketeering gambling robbery and pimping uh his his code name on the street was a uh, Detroit Red this is what he was called and in his autobiography he writes of many um, near-death moments where he, at the point where he was writing his autobiography, reflecting and looking back in retrospect, simply does not understand how he did not pass away in those moments because it was it was an environment of tumult um, and a lot of negative things were occurring around him. And he was partaking in, of course, a lot of negative actions at such a young age.
1: Yeah. And uh, funny, actually, you said there about Detroit Red. He had a friend... Um... Who was nicknamed Chicago Red, mm. who went on to become the legendary comedian Red Fox?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Which I found very interesting. This guy was a massive comedian in America in I would say probably around you know the sixties, seventies, and into maybe the early eighties. Yeah. But it's quite interesting that these these guys their paths, you know, crossed quite significantly. They were the best of friends. I think during the movie, the um the Spike Lee character Shorty.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I I think that is kind of supposed to be Red Fox to a certain degree.
0: Yeah, very interesting. I never took note of that. That's fascinating and it makes sense. Um,
1: there were also claims that at this time he was occasionally prostituting himself mm. with other men for money, but these have been massively, I think, disputed by a lot of the people that knew him. There isn't there's kind of... Very conflicting evidence, both for and against it. I think probably more so for against it. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. But just an yeah, interesting.
0: It's... Go on. No, I was going to say, as you are about to say, sorry for interrupting you, it's definitely a very fascinating point. Um, I know in his autobiography, he writes about how he colluded, um, uh, uh, quote unquote, professionally with prostitutes and worked with pimps. He worked to kind of hook up, per se, the prostitutes with customers. And he worked as a sort of middleman in this regard. Uh, he also writes about how you know he saw a lot of things when he was doing this job. Uh, he saw a lot of very famous politicians and businessmen that he did not want to name in his autobiography. That people would be surprised to hear, you know, who were in um, in terms of the aesthetics of it all that the public got to see loving uh, relationships. Who would go to the you know down the dark alley to engage with the you know a black prostitute that they would criticize in the daytime. About how inferior they were. Uh, In regards to this specific point, though, Sean, you're very right. There's lots of conflicting views on it, and I think the sad thing about the commentary I've seen around this um, is that I think people really approach it with their own political presuppositions. So, for example, many in the in the Nation of Islam, for example, um, who which is naturally a more conservative group, or many in in sects within the Black American community uh, that that are more conservative leaning and Socially conservative would want to read this with disbelief because to them Malcolm X would never do such a thing, and they may hold somewhat regressive views when it comes to uh, sexuality in the LGBT community but i've also read commentary from people who maybe took this part of Malcolm 's life, this possible part of his life and amplified it to almost make it look as if it 's a defining feature of Malcolm X, which it really isn't and I think this ignores us from the reality on the gr- the real reality that Malcolm X, as as a teenager, had to engage in nefarious activity in the first place. So whether it was true or not, uh, which, you know, the evidence that is available disputes, but people argue was true and, you know, apparently people came out to leak it was true. Whether it was true or not, it's sad that he was in that predicament in the first place. And I think that's the conclusion we should all come to.
1: Absolutely, I agree. Um, Yeah, you make a very good point there that... Those accusations were used to besmirch the name and kind of destroy the message, which we'll get onto the message he was uh, putting forward later on. But used to basically kind of to sully the name and, like I said, destroy the message. Instead of looking at, well, why did he have to do these things? Mm. Why was he in that position to begin with? Mm. But yeah, you make a very good point. Um, but in 1946, he was arrested and. Um, jail for a string of robberies on white families and sentenced to eight to ten years in prison. Um, now, really, the, his prison sentence turns out to be probably some of the most uh, important years of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's in there, he meets a fellow convict named John Bembry, a self-educated man who he later described as the first man I ever met um, with total, which would command total respect with words under Bembry's influence, Malcolm developed a voracious appetite for reading, and um, although I don't think the person that, uh, in the movie, the, the the kind of mentor figure in the movie, I don't think he's actually a real person, necessarily. He mm. seems to be kind of, he seems to be kind of a culmination of both this this guy, John Bembry's influence, and his uh, brother or sibling's influence, who wrote to him, basically telling about the nation mm. of Islam, Uh, A new religious movement that was, you know, preaching black self-reliance and ultimately kind of the Garvey uh, principles of the return of the African diaspora to Africa, Mm. you know, where they'd be free from white American and European domination. Um, Mm. And at first he showed very, very little interest in this movement, but after his brother Reginald wrote to him in 1948... Uh, telling him, Malcolm, do not eat any more pork and don't smoke any more cigarettes, and I'll show you how to get out of prison. He quit smoking and began to refuse pork. So he began to kind of take up the message.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and he did. And before we continue uh, in terms of the chronology of Malcolm's life in in jail, I think it's important to note that very briefly, he he, he was in jail, as you said, because of a robbery, but um he um he um was ingratiated uh by um a white woman who in his book he calls Sophia. Um but that's of course not her legal legal name. He avoid using her legal name for legal reasons. But um he got close to Sophia when he was quite young. Um during the kind of whilst he was in Boston actually he began knowing Sophia and they stayed connected throughout his um tenor as Detroit Red before going to prison. And he actually conducted the robbery alongside a friend of his, Sophia and a friend of Sophia's. And uh, when well, they were at court, uh, all four individuals who, of course, uh, partook in the robbery. Malcolm and his friend were sentenced to jail. But the two white ladies, one being Sophia, who Malcolm X was quite close to intimately for many years prior to this stint, they were exonerated. Um, so for, like, linking this back to what we said previously about Malcolm's perception about white people and the white community, um, you know, this again plays a role in shaping how he views those around him who are Caucasian because of the fact that his experiences point to a particular feeling and sentiment and interaction. And uh, in terms of his kind of stay in prison, as you said, they're instrumental uh, for Malcolm X. They really were key years for him. Um, and I, I think it's important to look at the inspiring element of this, too. I think, um, you know, many uh, who have seen speak about this in the African American community. And they talk profoundly about how the autobiography of Malcolm X is the number one book that many people from the black community in America read whilst they're in prison. Because his story is so inspiring of how he changed his life when he was in prison and let go of ways that he, of course, took in and picked up when he was younger, which were nefarious and linked to criminality. But nonetheless, in terms of the present moment we're speaking of, Sean, yes, he was revealed to the nation of Islam by his Reginald, his brother Reginald and was really, really appealed to by the the message of the nation of Islam. He was hesitant to pick it up at first. He, uh, of course, he, he never really saw God in a favorable way because of his experiences, which is somewhat understandable. And this was so much true that they called him Satan <laughs> in jail. But uh, nonetheless, the message gradually kind of grew on him. Um, and yes, the, re- the rest, I'm sure we'll get into.
1: Yeah. Um, and in late 1948, then, he wrote to Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam. Muhammad advised him to renounce his past and humbly bow in prayer to God and promise never to engage in destructive behavior again. And though he later recalled the inner struggle he had before bending his knees, Malcolm soon became a member of the Nation of Islam. And in the film, it's done brilliantly, I think, that he felt, and he, he can can describes in the book as well, that he felt that Elijah Muhammad was almost in his cell with him kind of walking him through the process and and, um, almost like, um, you know, you see kind of the Bible stories. I think he likes to do Luke on the road to Damascus when Mm. he encounters Christ and he fell to his knees. Mm. He said that type of, he said he couldn't understand it, but he he felt like that must be um, how Luke felt. Mm. This, you know, seeing almost a, 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 I I, be careful to use the word godlike, but such a an enormous figure, shall we say?
0: Yeah. I, I, to be honest, Sean, the, the term "godlike," I think, using it, using it sparingly, but figuratively in this context, in terms of speaking to the lore that Elijah Muhammad had, not only on Malcolm X, but the followers of uh, Elijah Muhammad, who would flock en masse around him uh, and do absolutely anything in his name. Uh, I think the effect was certainly religious, and he was seen as somewhat of a celestial figure. So, it, maybe it was somewhat of a godlike um, effect he had, but whether he was a godlike person is certainly a, a separate question that I think is quite obvious. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. We're going to have to do i I'll do a separate podcast on Elijah Muhammad because <laughs> and on the foundations of the Nation of Islam because there's a whole other story in that himself. He's um, he's a unique figure, shall we say? But uh, <laughs> moving on, I found this very interesting that in 1950, while he's still in prison, bear in mind, um, the FBI opened a file on Malcolm after he wrote a letter to President, President Truman expressing opposition to the Korean War and declaring himself a communist. That year, he also began signing his name, Malcolm X. Now, can you imagine, this really, I think, speaks to the US at the time, and probably still today, that they were willing to spend the money to put surveillance on a man that was already in prison because he wrote a letter. Mm, like yeah, I I found I find this crazy. Mm. They they literally have Malcolm locked up in jail, and mm. they decide you know what we'll keep an eye on him now as well. We'll start surveilling him, see what he's up to.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was the fervor of the Red Scare. Uh, the Red Scare was really taken so seriously uh, by the United States of America uh, to a ri- ridiculous extent, uh, to the point where many civil rights leaders uh, who expressed an interest in communism and many who did not were branded and labelled as communists, sometimes with a genuine a genuine but twisted kind of vindictive drive to indict them. But also uh, it was it was such a massive scandalous thing to be seen as a communist that it could be used strategically, which it was by the FBI in some cases uh clamped Massively, down on yeah. people. Yeah, they didn't like or agree with.
1: Yeah. And like it didn't even you didn't even necessarily need to be a socialist or a communist being i think a a social democrat was enough being a democrat was in a lot of cases you know particularly if you were a democrat and had connections to the civil rights like you said that was enough to be labeled a communist that was enough to be you know mm. put down um, in the FBI's book as a communist so would you like there's a bit of confusion around the the x at the end of his name. So would you like to kind of walk us through exactly what the meaning behind that was?
0: Of course. So many people in the Nation of Islam at at this time that we're speaking of at this point of time in history, but also today, um, use the abbreviation of X uh, to represent or fill in for their surname. And the whole idea behind this is related to the fact that when African slaves were brought brought to America, they're very much, this is how, you know, the of Islam colloquialism would put it, but it's also, I would argue, in tune with historical facts, just um, they were, you know, denied of their their name, their language, their religion. Um, They were denied of a a sense of self in regards to Africa, completely stripped from their motherland, not only physically in the form of them being uh, sold as slaves and picked up as slaves and brought to the Western Hemisphere, but also mentally, psychologically, uh, spiritually, culturally, um, and the surname uh, that many African-Americans carried at this time were the surnames that uh, the slave master of their forebears um, were put on, on their forebears that, of course, carried down the lineage from generation to generation and landed at the African-Americans that existed at the time that Malcolm X did or lived at the time that Malcolm X did. So the Nation of Islam repudiated uh, this surname that was imposed by the slave master, the oppressor, uh, and would give everyone an X symbol to represent this act of rebellion or revolution. And Elijah Muhammad, being the leader of the nation, said that once people earned their stripes within the nation of Islam, they then would be given a, a, a surname, designated a surname by him, which is their accurate surname. So this speaks to the kind of Pan-Africanist, Afrocentric nature of, of the nation too. But I think it's important also to speak to the part of the nation of Islam that Martin Luther King Jr. referred to as Black supremacy. Um, they uh, Elijah Muhammad released a book outlining what he wrote as the chronology of uh, interaction between the races. And very briefly, the book basically states that once upon a time, black people, you know, they populated the earth singularly on their own. Eventually, white people were manufactured in a lab um, uh, as a punishment to black people. Uh, without getting into the nitty gritty details. And then the white man rose, uh, his evil nature from the, with his evil nature from the lab, rose as a devil to try and scourge the very existence of black people. And that this occurred, and this is represented through the North Atlantic slave trade and colonialism. And that one day God would return to place upon the, uh, the head, uh, of, of black people in America and throughout the world, the crown that they so rightfully deserve. And they then would have the power and dethrone the white power structure. I take their place as kings and queens of, of the world. So very roughly, this is a, a very I think uh, it's a paraphrase of, of Hate the doctrine. Filled. Yeah, um this is
1: kind of what I'm speaking about there a few minutes ago about Elijah Muhammad. He's um he's
0: certainly an interesting figure with some interesting beliefs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh this is what appealed to Malcolm X partially. He, he believed, you know, as, as, he, as the nuggets that we've both been dropping for the listeners in regards to Malcolm's experience with white people, this all is what pushed him, and many African Americans who were suffering by the hands of systemized white supremacy, pushed him towards that doctrine. And I think it does speak to a very deep human urge within all of us. It's a kind of psychological, emotional vulnerability. If we're so prone to seeing violence by the color red, um, and someone sells us, a, and red makes us feel like we're inferior. And someone sells us a message that gives us a sense of pride in ourselves and lets us know that red is wrong and red is evil. The human being is more likely to gravitate towards that message. And I think um, yeah. that was true of many people Would, that followed the Nation of Islam.
1: Yeah. Would you say, based on that doctrine, that the Nation of Islam could be considered a hate group? That's this is just—I no, I don't, I don't really have an opinion on this necessarily, but it's just a. Something that kind of came to my mind is because uh, I hadn't heard, I hadn't read Elijah Muhammad's um, doctrine. I had obviously seen bits of pieces throughout my research on Malcolm, but I hadn't gone that deeply into um, Elijah Muhammad. So, what would you say to that?
0: I definitely think the philosophy is illiberal. I think it's regressive. It's backwards. Not only is it not good for white people, who would naturally be scared of this message, but more importantly, in the context of the nation's goal, it's not good for black people because it indoctrinates them. But I think. You know, I, I'll, I'll refer to uh, James Baldwin's book, The Fire Next Time. He spoke of this. He he actually himself had an interaction with the nation. And very briefly, he said the reason why he could never, ever comply with such a regressive message is because it it, 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 it rightfully criticizes the idea that God is white, that all that is good with, is white, that the top of the mountain is merely white and everything below it is black. But instead of trying to revolutionize that system, to bring about a sense of equality so that all human beings can share the mantle of leadership and power and love for one another, it intends to simply flip it to put the nation and its followers at the top and everyone else at the bottom. So it's engaging in the same, what what Baldwin called, European error of marrying power at the expense of others instead of pushing equality. So the philosophy is backwards, but it's very important to understand how this way of thinking came to be, I think hate groups are defined by hate and hate alone. The, the, the nation of Islam, the nation of Islam, did a lot of positive things to the black community. Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King, in his book, "Where Do We Go from Here?" he really acknowledges and commends the fact that the nation of Islam took many people like Malcolm X from the streets and, and, and revolutionized their life, cleaned them up, allowed them to subscribe to noble and um, what what would be described as spiritually upright ideals to make them, you know, good citizens within society, to contribute morally in, in, in the right way, in a way that is good for them, and to acquire competence and pride and confidence. This task of reforming individuals, you had a whole network and different moths were dedicated to this, was revolutionary at this time, and did something that a lot of other bodies and organizations, including government, they did not do. So I don't think the nation is entirely defined by the philosophy, although it is hateful and backwards, and we have to be able to, like, with any figure or thing in history, or people today, political figures or anyone, appreciate that there's a bit of a ah, uh, but also a bit of a ah. Uh.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a there's nuance to it. Absolutely, I agree with you there. Um, that was actually something I wanted to touch on with the Nation of Islam. That it's something that I massively respect about them. That much of their kind of their steps for living, I think, mm. are quite are quite a lot of them are quite good steps, particularly mm. I think the, um, around the, um, which we'll get into with, uh, Malcolm's, uh, wife, Betty X, mm. who the dietary requirements are, mm. I think massively important. Like, you know, mm. the moving away from kind of, um, as they saw bad kind of comfort foods, eat more vegetables, you know, mm. take a bit of, take a bit of pride in yourself, take a bit of pride in your community. Mm. You know, look mm. after your own. You look after your own first. You mm. know, let's like um, one of the things Malcolm X you see a lot in the movie is um, people standing up on top of ladders saying, "You know, we can milk cows. We can, you know, grow vegetables." Um, where, where's our mm. grocery stores? We need, we need to start providing for ourselves because we can't expect anyone else to do it. Which I think is is a really good message.
0: Mm-mm. Yeah. And Sean, there. Uh, when I found out for the first time that Malcolm X wrote that message to uh, the president stating that he was a communist, um, I was quite taken aback from this because, and this is linking to what you said about self-empowerment, which is the ethos of Malcolm X's message. He very much spoke of in his book about the need for black Americans to economically empower themselves, to establish businesses within their community, employ their own and engage in economic actions that were good. At uplifting the community, eradicating poverty, and providing jobs to the despondent on the street, um, you know many people. Of course, they've uh, I don't want to t- delve too deeply in this, but into this, but they've tired Malcolm X as an anti-Semite. But in his book, he addressed his criticism and claimed that he has nothing at all against the Jews. The Jews are a part of the religious lineage that Muslims are a part of. He was a Muslim, but he always spoke of how, in at this time in America, the people who tended to be the Tradesmen and the owners of the stores within Black communities, a lot of the time were Jewish people, uh, and he spoke of how a lot of Black people within these stores are being mistreated. And all he encouraged Black people were to do was to pick up the good habits from the Jewish community and try and um, implement this for for their own community. I say this simply to speak to that self empowerment and the economic liberation through self self assertive action that he he kind of spoke of. Yeah. So. It was somewhat of a, would, a contradiction but,
1: there that is fascinating. Yeah, I would pull you, though, on the anti-Semitic that, that he, he did make very much anti-Semitic gestures. I think one, he made a comment against, the, um, against Jewish people where he said, if you say anything against the Jewish community, the, the Jewish-run media will tear you down. I'm paraphrasing there, but that is the message, which mm. is, is anti-Semitic. That that yeah. isn't that is a, an age-old anti-Semitic trope. The the Jew runs the media, so like I think they're definitely and within the Nation of Islam, particularly. I think you know future leaders such as Louis Farrakhan, yeah, Khalid Rahman are, and, as
0: well,
1: yeah, are, are, yeah, are very were had very massively anti-Semitic lean, leanings.
0: Undeniably, uh, it it cannot be disputed that the Nation of Islam um, um, posits. You know, flagrant anti-Semitism, unwielding, uh, unyielding rather anti-Semitism, uh, that is sometimes masked, that is sometimes masked perniciously, but is obvious, um, very obvious. But you know, and and there's no justifying that. Even with this speech from Malcolm X, I recall it for sure. It's a very I I cited the anti-Semitism kind of thing that he addressed in his book to speak to the economic liberation that he spoke of. But in terms of anti-Semitism specifically, it's very true. But um, with Louis Farrakhan uh, and the Nation of Islam, you know me myself and Sean, and you know this. And uh, when I was growing up in the Pan African household that I did grow up in, I uh, very much subscribed to Farrakhan as a figure. Uh, I felt like he I gave remember, me yes. <laughs> I felt like he gave me the sense of uh, confidence um, and self assertiveness that I needed to navigate myself here in Ireland as a migrant. I of course confronted discrimination and racism oft as a youth. Um, and any time I'd come home and I did so, my mother would sit me down and play me a speech from Farrakhan. and After that speech, I would look in my mirror and I feel loved, I feel like I'm valued, that I have something to be proud of that although you know there's so much historical indicators, there were so many historical indicators in my mind then that um may presume that I was inferior because I was black or that I was nothing but a slave in terms of history. there is more to my history that although I'm in a majority white country. I too add value to this country. And if others don't see it, they just don't sort of appreciate the glory of my blackness. This was my mentality when I was young and it helped me get through a lot of hard times. So I think Baldwin also in his book, The Fire Next Time, criticizes the nation of Islam, but he says America's mistake is not understanding why the nation of Islam is so popular. Why, where black populism comes from, why it's so popular, why it appeals to people. Absolutely, yeah. You, you know, and, and I was definitely a, you may be a victim of this type of, uh, populism too but um it's important to understand the underlying factors that see one gravitate towards it
1: yeah oh definitely and kind of what i'm trying to get at with this podcast is that there's nuance to all of this you can kind of go out and say that and like and i i wouldn't dream to because i do think there is definitely positivity in the message that like i said already the nation of islam is nation of islam is pushing um but there's two sides, there's nuance to it. There's two sides to it. There is, you know, there's a, like you said, there's an ah uh, and a uh. There's a <laughs> there's the good side and a bad side. And it's important to recognize that, I think. Um, but we'll get back on topic, because that was, that was a lovely mm. little segue. Um, uh, early minister, so after his parole in 1952, Malcolm X visited Elijah Muhammad in Chicago. And in June 1953, he was named assistant minister of the nation's temple number one in Detroit. Uh, Later that year, he established Boston's Temple No. 11 in March 1954. He expanded Temple No. 12 in Philadelphia. And two months later, he was selected to lead Temple No. 7 in Harlem, where he rapidly expanded his membership. Now, during his um, time in the Nation of Islam, his effect on the nation's membership was massive. It's believed that from between the 1950s and early 1960s, there was a dramatic growth in membership and some estimated it to be from r- around 500 members to anywhere between 25 and 75,000. Mm, um nice. so a massive growth so i think kind of the conservative estimate is about 50,000. So people basically the kind of what they're saying there is around 45 and a half thousand people give or take joined you know with Malcolm X's influence, Mm,
0: which I think kind uh, of
1: shows how, how good um, a speaker he was. And one of the things I saw uh, for this was Elijah Muhammad was something of, you know, a picture on your, above your fireplace. He was, Mm. you know, he was godlike, but he was very remote and distant. Whereas Malcolm was something you could Mm. see and touch. Malcolm was somebody Mm who would stop in the the street and talk to somebody. He, you know, make a speech at a classroom. He, you know, he he was much more involved and much more in the real world, I think, than Elijah Muhammad was, which made him mm. much more a popular figure.
0: Yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, Malcolm, of course, was still charismatic, such a trailblazing orator. You could really feel him when he spoke. Uh, you could, you you knew that everything he came from came from a place of sincerity, and sincerity is something that he tried to always prioritize. This is something he said himself, uh, and he really was on the front line connecting with the grassroots, trying to uplift people from the bottom. And the bottom being where he thought he was prior to going to jail. He knew what it was like to be out on the streets. He knew how he was affected. He knew how he thought. So he had the psychological advantage of being in the place psychologically that many people who he, who he was trying to reach were. So a lot of people, you know, were touched by his message um, and many people converted to The Nation as a result. And the statistics, the numbers in regards to the amount of people that he converted is simply astonishing for one man to have such a huge, enormous, voluminous impact on an organization is big. Uh, but I, I think, And I think this maybe will speak to something that we're yet to discuss in terms of what came uh, in the relationship between Malcolm and The Nation. But uh, Malcolm X is a close friend of his called John Henry Clark, Actually stated, who is not a very big fan of the nation or Elijah Muhammad, um, he wasn't a big fan. And when he was operating as a historian, um, he's an African American historian. He stated that Malcolm X, you know, when criticizing the nation, did more for the nation than the nation did for itself. And he he also said that you know, and because Malcolm X was really modest and humble, Elijah Muhammad was his father figure. Before he said anything on air or, or on radio or in his speeches. He'd always give credit uh, and praise to the Elijah, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, as he would put it, the man who's the reason yeah. why he is who he is today. Before before he proceeded to speak, while well, John Henry Clark actually stated that Malcolm X attributed so much intellectual brilliance and wit that he manufactured himself to Elijah Muhammad, which added credence and uh, glory to Elijah's name, which Markham deserved because he was the one that manufactured a lot of his intellectual. Um, ways of thinking and thoughts around the issue of issue of self-reformation and um black empowerment. So this is an interesting critique that Malcolm carried the torch stronger than the creators of the torch um could carry themselves. Absolutely,
1: yeah. Absolutely, like what was it? he said that um the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us, and that like you said, yeah. that was the preface to basically everything he said while he was yeah. in the nation. Which, like you said, again, really I suppose kind of fanned the flames of um Elijah Muhammad's mystique and his the reverence around him. But if you want to kind of walk us through their
0: um yeah. Malcolm X's love life. Of course, of course. So okay okay, so Detroit Red uh was quite promiscuous as he put it in his in his autobiography, as Malcolm put it in his in his autobiography and had that relationship with Sophia, but other um you know intimate engagements with other females too but uh, when he had joined the nation he was very modest very conservative in how he engaged with females in fact he really was not concerned about intimacy at all when he was in the nation he was quite attractive in, in the eyes of many ladies in the nation and in fact many of them would have wanted to marry uh Malcolm X and he noticed this and i think he he notes this in his autobiography but he was never interested in taking anything past a religious relationship with the ladies around him, um, and the nation of Islam have very strict rules and codes, anyways, in regards to relationships. So they prohibited one-on-one dates, and so this simply could not occur. Uh, this is what the nation of Islam taught, and um, so you know couples had to court one another and uh, engage with one another in social events organized by the nation of Islam. Um, and Malcolm, anyways, he he very quickly uh, noticed a lady called Betty. As Sanders, who, was later, who is now referred to as Betty Shabazz after marrying Malcolm X. And she was a part of many groups within the nation. She joined as Betty Sanders. Her name changed to Betty X when she joined the nation. She was part of various social groups in the nation of Islam, many women's groups. And they got quite close, um, and they visited each other quite frequently. Um, and he actually brought her to um, New York's uh, museum and the library in New York. And there's a very nice scene. In the the movie of the Malcolm X movie, where he brings Betty on a date to the museum, or just a trip to the museum because dates are technically prohibited, and he expresses how much yeah. he knows and his knowledge on different artifacts in the museum and on history too. And Betty's quite um I don't know, uh, charmed by Malcolm X, and thereafter they grew quite close. And uh, Malcolm X, it's very funny reading this in his book. He talks about how over the phone he he, he proposed to Betty Shabazz and. In the book, it's so abrupt. He's almost like I call. He believes a woman will tell you what she wants and be honest with you when she's put on the spot. I believe I remember reading something like this. So he calls her and asks her, "Will you marry me?" It's the first words that come out of his mouth, and she says, "Yeah, yes." And that's that. They're married.
1: <laughs> they're married. They're married two days later, isn't it? It's like literally the he proposes and two days later that's it
0: you're married yeah that's when it occurred but uh the agreement was so abrupt and sudden and yes two days later that's when they're married
1: yeah and it's the same uh, in the movie it literally there's about i would say maximum in a three and a half hour movie there's about 10 minutes of them dating if if even and then it's just kind of first date they chat a bit and then they're married Hmm. Yeah. It, it's done very abruptly, like in the book it's really um, sped through, but they would go on to have um, six children two of which would be born after their father's death, and I'm going to do a separate episode on um, Malcolm X's death, because there's, there's so much more to go into, you could be here for another hour, mm. but um, this brings us to the Hinton Johnston, uh, sorry the Hinton Johnson incident mm. in, on uh, April 26th 1957 Hinson Johnson and two other members of the Nation of Islam saw two New York City police officers beating an African-American man with nightsticks. When they attempted to intervene, I think Johnson shouting, um, you're not in Alabama, this is New York. The officers turned on Johnson and beat him so severely that he suffered brain contusions and subdural hemorrhaging. All four African-American men were then later arrested. Alerted uh, about this by a witness, Malcolm X and a small group of Muslims went to the police station and demanded to see Johnson. The police initially denied that any Muslims were being held, but when the crowd grew to about 500, all being led by Malcolm X, they allowed Malcolm to speak with Johnson. Afterward, Malcolm X insisted on arranging for an ambulance to take Johnson to Harlem Hospital. Um, So his injuries were treated and he was then later returned to the police station. By this stage, some 4,000 people had gathered outside. Inside the uh, station, Malcolm X and an attorney were making bail arrangements for two of the Muslims. Johnson was not bailed, and police said he could not go back to the hospital until his arraignment day, i uh, sorry, until his arraignment the following day. Uh, considering the situation to be in an impasse, Malcolm X stepped outside the station house, gave a hand signal to the crowd. Nation member silently left after which the rest of the crowd also dispersed so in the movie if you if anybody hasn't seen this scene look it up on youtube it is it's incredibly well done where he just walks outside makes kind of the hand and then the arrow and just a, a, an entire crowd stops silent and moves at his command and uh, one police officer told the new york amsterdam news no one man should have that much power mm yeah yeah
0: what it's a, iconic scene um and um yeah it, it really jumps out of you when you're reading it from the autobiography also really really um uh animated moment um when when you know the the end of the whole process where he sends everyone away away not oratorically, which he can do incredibly well as we know from his proven uh skills in terms of uh speaking but you know through gesture through hand signals. Uh, In the scene, he actually doesn't look at the crowd. He's facing, looking right at the police officer before him, and the crowd is behind him, and he raises his hand. And as Sean said, he makes the the shape of an arrow, points in a particular direction, and everyone's off in that direction. So just a very iconic movie moment, I guess, but also a a riveting moment in regards to history, because it really speaks to the power that Malcolm X has. And I think, um, nearly prophetically, this moment, speaks also, when it comes to the police officer saying that no one man should have this much power, the distaste, the dissatisfaction, the unhappiness that existed within authority about the amount of power that Malcolm X had over so many people.
1: Yeah, and actually, in fact, within a month, the New York City Police Department arranged to keep Malcolm X under surveillance. Uh, It also made inquiries with authorities in other cities in which he had lived and prisons in which he had served time. A grand jury declined to indict the officers who beat Johnson. Um, And in October, Malcolm X sent an angry telegram to the police commissioner. Soon after, the police department assigned undercover officers to infiltrate the Nation of Islam. And that's something I'll talk more about in the the assassination episode, because there's it 's unbelievable how that ends up fair now, but if you want to i 've talked to a fair amount there. if you want to walk us through the kind of his increasing prominence and i suppose controversy which he faced
0: of course, so uh, by the late 1950s he 'd grown in prominence, um, he had many television appearances, including the show about the Nation of islam, the hit, the hit, the hit that hit produced this of course was a very big documentary at the time uh, where um an inside look was given into the operations of the Nation of Islam um, and where American citizens and uh, who watch the documentary were allowed to see what the nation stood for and what their message was all about. And of course it's self-explanatory, the title of the documentary. They're implying that the Nation of Islam is hate, but it was also produced by a deeper American hatred for uh, black people at the time. Um yeah, you, you know, so it's a it's a fascinating fascinating documentary. It also had many other appearances on television too. It was on many interviews and on the radio, um, uh, much debating many people. Um, So, yes, he was quite growing in prominence in terms of the public eye, the American public eye. Um, He he was also invited to meet a lot of distinguished political units throughout the world. So uh, he met Nassar of Egypt uh, and Fidel Castro of Cuba also and developed relationships with both men and actually referenced both men also the nations that they led, Egypt and Cuba, in a lot of speeches that he delivered to black Americans. Um, he had a rally uh, with leader of the American Nazi Party, Lord, George Lincoln Rockwell, who claimed that white supremacy and black nationalism overlap. This is something that Malcolm actually wrote about in his book, uh, where essentially he, as a member of the Nation of Islam, um, and I don't think we, we actually touched on this, the Nation of Islam actually believed in establishing a separate black nation, so they felt like they simply could not be integrated within uh, white America or the wider American society because white Americans did not want to enable this. Yesterday was actually the birthday of Ruby Mae Bridges, who um, was a young girl at, at this time point of time in history, who was sent to desegregate an all-white school, and parents withdrew their children from the school she was being sent to, and many protesters were outside the school as she was walked into the school by army marshals because they were scared of the safety and health of this young girl. Um, You know, protesters were shouting that she didn't belong there because she was a black person. So, these were examples that the Nation of Islam would point to to say that we cannot exist within this nation, so you need to give us our own state, our own land, our 40 acres and a mule, as they would put it, because this is what was owed to slaves after reparations and let us live uh, together with our own race. So, the, yeah, the, and this this was, um, go on. Oh, no, I was simply going to say the Ku Klux Klan, on the other hand, believed that black people should be separate, but their reason for believing this was that black people were inferior. At uh, the Nation of Islam, then, you know, they believed that white people were the devils. So when they, they, there was that cruel and sinister overlap between what the nation wanted and what the Ku Klux Klan wanted, hence why Malcolm was able to meet with Rockwell to try and actualize the vision of, both parties involved in the deliberations
1: yeah it, it's it's it was a really kind of very strange bedfellows that <laughs> they end up together but you can kind of see why they did like you've pointed out there brilliantly that there was there was an overlap but you know they weren't the best of friends to me yeah, they weren't yeah. exactly allies yeah. yeah absolutely it was kind of like a yeah it was kind of
0: like a you know
1: You want us to fuck off and we want to fuck off. (laughs) Let's work together.
0: Absolutely. It couldn't have been said better. Um, And the the big thing that historians and students and people who are interested in this period of time in American history note when it comes to race relations and the civil rights movement is the stark, strong, and passionate, I would argue, departure. um, uh, Not departure necessarily, but the the split between Malcolm X and what he wanted for black Ameri- Americans and Martin Luther King and people who were of the civil rights, nonviolent tradition and what they wanted for black America. Malcolm X was of the opinion that King, there was firstly there was a divide in terms of religious orientation. Malcolm X was a Muslim or at least a member of the Nation of Islam, which is actually a departure from Orthodox Islam. And King was a Christian. Um, Malcolm X believed that Christianity was responsible for a lot of the oppression that black people face in America. He believed Christianity pacified black Americans, that uh, they were too worried about turning the other cheek to their oppressor, whilst um, white Americans were, of course, battering any cheek that they could hit. Uh, and, And he was claiming that leaders like Martin Luther King were pacifying the black majority in the black population. He actually referred to Martin Luther King as a chump, and I think on one occasion called him an Uncle Tom, or someone who is betraying his race, by upholding these messages of nonviolent while, uh, violence, while the wider white American society is brutalizing black people. King, on the other hand, believed in the nonviolent tradition. He and people like Bayard Rustin and other civil rights figures were convinced by the ways of Mahatma Gandhi. King actually went to India to study non-vi- the nonviolent tradition with his own eyes and meet a lot of Gandhi's accomplices, I believe. They believed this was the way forward, and they did not interpret the pacifism of many black Americans as a weakness, but saw it <coughs> sorry. <laughs> Gosh, I'm talking off here. But saw it as a moral strength. So this was a very interesting divide between the two. Oh as the last thing I was going to say on the Martin Luther King um Malcolm X divide was that the iconic um and the you know pivotal landmark a pivotal landmark, the A iconic and pivotal landmark landmark moment in the civil rights movement was, of course, the March on Washington, led by Martin Luther King, Byron Rustin, and many other civil rights figures. And, um, you know, King referred to this as, sorry, sorry, Malcolm X referred to this as the farce on Washington. Uh, And he actually, in one of his speeches, he spoke of how black Americans prior to the March on Washington were going to riot. And they were going to riot because they were unhappy about their economic circumstance, racism, discrimination, and social exclusion. And he said that when the political authorities saw that these black Americans were going to riot, they then gathered whatever uh, uh, black Americans that they could easily handpick for their own political um, twisted mission and and, and tasked those black Americans with placating black America to prevent them from rioting. And and hence why he termed it as the farce on Washington, that it was designed to muffle the The spirit and the energy that many black Americans feel when it comes to truly leading rebellion to to uh, criticize and admonish the American state. So, very interesting kind of uh, divergence between the two men in terms of their approach that, of course, we, we know today that many people speak of today still.
1: Yeah, and I'll just get your opinion, Eric. Which do you think you'd be more closely aligned with? Um, would you be more closely aligned with the Malcolm X side or the the Martin Luther King style of um,
0: protest, probably the wrong word, but which I suppose
1: do you more closely identify with? That's a
0: great question, Sean. I'm actually really glad you asked me this, especially because the last time we actually talked about this topic, personally, I I probably had, I think, uh, aspects of a Malcolm X leaning uh, favoritism. You definitely definitely (laughs) (laughs) did. But, uh, you know, and I think back to my point on black populism, in the form of figures uh, that's uh, anthropomorphized by figures like Louis Farrakhan. It it speaks to those who need to be spoken to because of an experience that they have that's not being spoken to by anything else. This is really how populism works. And when I was growing up and I had negative interracial experiences sometimes, no one that was in any position of considerable power spoke to this and me validated me apart from my mom. But mothers are expected to do this. But when I looked at, let's say, the likes of Farrakhan or more, I think, legitimate figures like Malcolm X, I felt validated. And when I, as a black person, read the history of race relations in America when I was younger, I watched documentaries. And I think this is so true of today's time. Um, I was impassioned. I was saddened. I found it so tragic. My mom was showing me documentaries about slavery when I was in primary school. I felt disgusted. I I felt like, I felt hated. I felt like I was being whipped. You know, I felt like my my grandmom or or my auntie was brought to America, the shores of America and the Americas and the Western world and Britain too to be enslaved and whipped and beaten also. So I was angry. I was really, really angry. And so when I followed on in the history and I listened to men like Malcolm X say that we need to stand up and not allow white supremacists and the Ku Klux Klan to get us down and to suppress us and to oppress us, I saw so much value in this message and Martin Luther King's method of turning the other cheek when I was younger to me was simply futile because in my mind, you were doing it to the eternal perennial oppressors who simply want to oppress you. I thought that he was a lovely man when I was younger, but I thought he was quite naive in my private life. I actually think that I manifested more Kingian characteristics than politically speaking, but I always gravitated towards Malcolm X and something that I think was twisted with Malcolm message to his credit, is that he always advocated for self-defense. He actually said this on record in, uh, in an interview, I think it was on NBC. He said, I am not for black people indiscriminately uh, proceeding to kill white people, any white that is in sight. Rather, I'm for black people bearing arms and using the Second Amendment to defend themselves. So this really had me hooked for a while, until I think 2020, last year. I really steeped myself into a lot of Martin Luther King's speeches, his sermons, his books, and his readings. And I kind of moral moral transformation occurred in my life, where I saw how Malcolm X articulated the pain of black America better than anyone else. Better than anyone else throughout, I think, the 20th century. However, Martin Luther King articulated the vision of America and human beings better than anyone else. He saw the bigger picture more adequately, more profoundly, that Many figures throughout history have, have seen. And in the case of Ireland, I'd argue John Hume saw this too. He saw the value in peace, togetherness, cooperation. And to transcend the superficial construction of race, to see as brothers those who oppress you, and not to say that they are worthy of oppression too, but to say that they simply don't realize that I am their brother too. And if they did, they would not oppress me. To be able to transcend The tempting, tempting propensity to violence that we all have, I think, is incredibly powerful and is far more powerful than picking up arms. I think the common idea today of radical is, oh, I'm going to wear, you know, um, I don't know, um, um, uh, you know, uh, what's the term for a beret? I'm going to have a gun, a shotgun in my hand. I'm going to look rough and tough to be really radical is to transcend the propensity to do all of that because it's very easy to do that and to see the bigger picture. And King did that. So this has really inspired me. And in fairness to King, in his book, Where Do We Go From Here?, he acknowledged how... Firstly, he he tried to debunk the self-defense argument that Malcolm X put forward. He he basically says that, you know, no one is saying that uh, people should not be allowed to defend themselves. But when we're protesting... Our undertone simply cannot be violent because if a white person, he said, a white American, hit one of our protesters, our nonviolent demonstration, demonstrators, and they reacted violently, he said, number one, more white people might get, get involved and a huge brawl could break out. And number two, when the media report of our demonstration, they're not going to say these black people were protesting for jobs and housing and equal rights. They're going to say that these black violent protesters went out to wreak havoc. And our cause is ignored and forgotten because all people focus on is the violence. This is seeing the bigger picture strategically, but also morally. So I think uh, Martin Luther King, definitely a huge influence on my life nowadays, more so than when I was younger. I think he 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 had the right message. Um, he had it all along. But I think it's just, even in a human context, Sean, like in the in schoolyard, for example, like when someone hits you, the propensity is to hit them back. But what if I don't? And what if I tell the teacher? And what if that person then has the tension? You know, who's laughing then? And when they come back to the schoolyard, maybe we'll talk and be friends and can move on as friends. To be able to see that as a child in the schoolyard is incredibly difficult. King saw it in a much larger, more complex setting. So, yeah. yeah. And and in fairness to Malcolm X, I'll say the last thing I'll say is before the end of his death, I really think that he was starting to see it too. But of course, we did not get to see what would come of this version of Malcolm X because of events that we're going to get into. Yeah, I
1: was actually literally about to say that, that it appeared that um, in their final years, the pair of them were kind of moving closer together. I think King was kind of coming um, more away from the extreme side. And I think Martin Luther King was moving a little bit more towards um, Malcolm X's side. So I feel like they were probably going to meet in the middle nearly.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that was, of course, it was necessary to some extent because um, for both parties, because King, I think um, when Malcolm X died, um, the black power movement, it was existent when he was alive, but it really came on strongly within the black American political fora or space. And that was partly because of Malcolm X's legacy. And you hear it now today. And I heard it during the protests last year. Many people were saying things like, you know, Malcolm X was always, always right. Of course, you're referring to the early version of Malcolm X. He was always right. How can we exist uh, as as a people when, speaking of black people, when you know the system is against us and it's not working and there's no hope? There's a lot of racially, yeah. Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. And I'm not sorry to interrupt you, but something I've seen a, an awful lot of, particularly on, on like um, social media sites like uh, TikTok and Instagram. I take this as the basis for everything, but I've seen people saying that. Um, um, I saw uh, it was a a black girl in America saying that they should have schools for uh, yeah, people uh, of color, and that things would be so much easier then. And it was just kind of a, it was kind of a wow moment for me. It was like, wow, is that is that really? Like, obviously, I'm not. I'm neither black nor American, so I can't speak on either. But. To, to think that things are that bad in America, that that is still very much a dominating um, a philosophy and a thought is is was quite scary. Yeah, probably isn't the right. word, but kind of... Yeah, kinda, yeah.
0: You know what I'm trying to get yeah, at. It's I, like I a, will oh, say oh, that Jesus, you know, TikTok, Twitter sometimes, and I think this encompasses the statement from that girl. I, I don't know the entirety of what she said, but a lot of similar sentiment that I see myself... I do think it's quite simplistic and quite reductionist in terms of its, its take of history. Um, yeah. There's so many things to take into account when it comes to the development of history, the thought of, of, the, of these men and, and women who are leaders in the black American liberationist tradition. Um, and I think such an idea is retracting from the position America is in now. America is a very flawed country. I don't think this can be denied but it is a very flawed country attempting to achieve a multi-racial multi-ethnic um democracy um and it's this is a very ambitious task and that cannot be underestimated and very few countries if any throughout the history of of humanity have attempted to achieve this successfully so um you know you ne-
1: Well I I don't think any country ever has tried it when you think about like America's literally built off of immigrants it is it is completely like there isn't with the exception of the native american population which are very much a minority within the u.s you know there it is completely comprised of yeah immigrants of you know people that that moved there out of choice and that moved there mm. by force then of course as yeah well. absolutely so it, it is. It's kind. Of, it's a massive experiment in many ways, I suppose. Yeah,
0: and something I've struggled with uh, in terms of uh, tying Malcolm X back into this is, especially in recent times, where I've really embraced Martin Luther King's higher transcendental message of, and you know, although Mark, uh, Martin Luther King gravitated towards Malcolm X t- towards his uh, approaching when he was approaching his death, he gravitated gravitated towards Malcolm X in terms of the harshness of of his critiques of the American project, they became more harsh because yes. his focus, he, he was based in the South uh, very much in, in the early civil rights movement uh, and did had a lot of successful campaigns in Birmingham, Selma, uh, Montgomery. But coming to the end of his life, he moved to the North of America. And he naturally would, thought the North would be better because traditionally this has been seen as a more liberal, yet racist, but still liberal area when it comes to race relations. And he saw the, the, the depth of despair and poverty that Black Americans face in the North, which was unmatched relative to the South. And this really, really uh, put him in a, a place of psychological, I think, angst. He, he, he just simply couldn't fathom the pain that many Black Americans face. So he had a more economic approach to his, his activism, and he wanted to see political changes in terms of the economic conditions of people. He saw that not much headway was being made in this regard. And the programs have been affected, executed effectively. So then he took on a more critical approach before he died. But he never, ever departed from the philosophy of seeing man or or the human being as one and seeing all of us uh, as people who are belonging to one shared human family. And he was a Christian. He was a minister. He was a Reverend Martin Luther King is his name in the context of his ministerial duties. He. He said, we are all one in the eyes of God. This is in line with the Christian tradition, but even if you don't believe in Christ or God, you can interpret this figuratively to say we are all the same. He never departed from that message. And this message is responsible for a lot of America's progress when it comes to race relations. Um, And I think, you know, a philosophy like this embedded in countries across the world would really put an end to a lot of conflict um, and a lot of of human demonization. So it, it is... Saddening yeah. to see rhetoric like that on TikTok or from people. Uh, but I think it's because of a failure to really embrace the magnitude and the bravery that is embedded in that philosophy, that king champion, that I think Malcolm was coming to appreciate, appreciate more coming to the end of his life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we'll move on very quickly. But just before we do, you mentioned there John, John Hume, and I think you can definitely... There are definitely serious comparisons between the two. Um, That quote that both you and I love, You Can't Eat the Flag, Mm. um, by John Hume, I think is very applicable to what uh, Martin Luther King was trying to do in the last few years of his life, the poor march, and kind of trying to get people to realize that you have more in common, you know, you as a a white person have more in common with the poor black man down the street than you do with, Mm. you know, the. The white man in office, who is you know a multimillionaire and has three houses all across the u s yeah. you know you who are struggling to find a job you have more in in common with and this is quite a socialist thing to say, but you 've more yeah. in common with those within your your social class than you may do um, with those of the of the same race yeah. as you
0: Yeah. yep, yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely, uh Hume championed that message incredibly well, um and it 's such a beautiful quote because. It can be twisted and turned to pur- portray so many different messages. So, you know, the flag can be seen as if you're critiquing or admonishing the nation of Islam, you can say to them that you can't eat your skin color, that um, the, the the skin color, or even the Ku Klux Klan is probably a better example. The whiteness that you so desperately crave will not feed you, but you and black people are fed by, in a, in a kind of political sense, human rights by... Um, the, the respecting of, of your human rights, your civic responsibilities,
1: yeah. equal opportunities for jobs, absolutely yeah. better employment opportunities. Absolutely. Anyway, so we'll move on to his departure from uh, the Nation of Islam, which uh, got quite messy. It all began really with on the um, following the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Um, he had been a harsh Ken- he had been a harsh critic of Kennedy for most of. Um, Um, for most of his time in office and upon news of the president's shooting is said to have remarked that devil is dead Mm. and on the 1st of December when asked would he like to comment on the assassination of JFK he remarked that it was a case of chickens coming home Mm. to roost and as an old farm boy that doesn't make me sad it makes me (laughs) glad. Now I think this is a a quote that is taken very much out of context in a lot of senses. I think it's seen the way he put it is seen as kind of a mocking tone. But I think what he's meaning behind that is that Lee Harvey Oswald, who um, is the believed assassin uh, or was believed to be working alone, was an American-Cuban sympathizer, Mm. a country which the Kennedy administration had meddled with through most of of his administration, most notably in the Bay of Pigs Mm. invasion. And kind of what he's getting at there is that, you know, Look, you are fucking around in someone else's country look this is what happens mm. you can't you can't expect to be you know um, this great power and you know be uh judge jury and executioner and not and not get some rebuttal, not get some um pushback from people mm. and also kind of pointing out that you know look that's what happened from your foreign policy. Imagine what could happen if you don't sort out your d yeah and another
0: element shown to this and i, I think um I'm, thank you so much for sharing that. I actually never understood this um that the other aspect to what he was saying because it's definitely a double entendre, you know assuming that he was referencing to Cuba also because uh I know in an, um following his statement or i think in an in an interview thereafter actually where he spoke of his statements he was questioned about his statements, he referenced um the bombing of a church which killed many um in his, like you know, young black children and also a flight that took off i believe containing oh no sorry you mentioned the bombing of a church that killed many black children and basically said that when when this occurred no one was outraged no one really cared um but now when the president passes away everyone cares so he, he was almost almost referring to a sort of cyclical karma that was coming back to strike white Americans. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, this is another meaning to the double entendre he was getting at when he uh, let, let go of that statement rhetorically.
1: Yeah, but this statement had massive implications for him within the nation, and he was banned by Elijah Muhammad, who had ordered his followers not to speak on the Kennedy assassination. Of course, it was the Kennedy being the darling prince, the one of the most popular presidents of all time, and for a, a member of the nation to speak would have been quite bad press. So when Malcolm did so, he was banned from public speaking for a period of 90 days. Now, this is kind of when he, he acts on rumors that had been circulating regarding um, sexual infidelities by Elijah Muhammad. Now, mm. the way I kind of look at this is that it was sort of a tit for tat, I think. He yeah. probably, he had obviously been aware of these, I think, beforehand. And mm. almost as, um, I suppose you could say, a fuck you to Elijah Muhammad he then started interviewing the girls and talked to Elijah Muhammad's son, um, Wallace D. Muhammad, who had been extradited mm. from the nation on a, numerous, on a number of occasions and let back in a number of times. Um, these affairs were with young secretaries of the nation and constituted a massive violation of the nation's yeah. rules. <clears throat> there had also been growing jealousy, I think, from Elijah Muhammad and other members within the nation regarding the growing influence and fame that Malcolm X was wielding, wielding, hmm. even. And yeah. on the 8th of March, 1964, he
0: announced his split. Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, a lot a lot occurred during this time. Um, firstly, to his, uh, the statements and his suspension from speaking publicly after making his statement about Kennedy. Um, Malcolm actually stated once that he believed that this was an, uh, a, a tactic, his suspension, to evade, it it was used strategically and tactically to um, punish Malcolm X, to silence Malcolm X during this period of time, um, to evade of what he was getting at in regards to the controversies of Elijah Muhammad and some of the things that he was doing. So he felt that this was very much tactical. And also, generally speaking, Malcolm X had always advocated for the Nation of Islam to become more politically involved with the black American community. He was... You know, hell bent on initiating voter registration drives. He talked about this in his speech, "The Ballot of the Bullet." And any time he tried to proceed with political action, he he felt like the nation would always prevent him from doing so. I would always tell him to stick to to the religious doctrine of the Nation of Islam rather than engaging with politics. And Malcolm, of course, saw something that I think is quite blatantly obvious: that real political progress or social progress for Black Americans cannot necessarily be achieved in this social historical context without a focus on the political. Um, So yeah, there was this clash too. So this maybe speaks to his comments on Kennedy also. But yes, in his autobiography, he talks about finding out what occurred with Elijah Muhammad and the young secretaries. And of course, he could not believe it. He thought that it was fabricated, that it was false. So he did some investigation. He spoke with Elijah Muhammad's sons. He spoke with the young ladies and uh, many of these young ladies were actually carrying children for Elijah Muhammad. And he he got Yeah. Or or had given birth yeah, to children. Yeah, that's and he he uh, he got to see the children with his own eyes. So um this definitely influenced him and he confronted Elijah Muhammad um and they had a, a conversation about it all uh, and what Elijah Muhammad did and this is you know it's quite a cunning thing to do. Um and I think it definitely speaks to the uh powering, alluring effect that religion can have. And to, to those who are completely and absolutely devoted to believing in religious doctrine as dogma. Uh, Elijah Muhammad pointed to prophets within the Bible uh, who had multiple wives. I believe he referenced Moses. Um, um, he referenced you know different figures, prophets from the Old Testament who had more than one wife. Um, and uh, he basically said that, you know, I'm basically following the tradition of the prophets. I am the messenger of Allah. Uh, And these prophets did what they did. So I am doing this too. It's nothing to get too worried about. Uh, And Malcolm X, of course, was happy to hear this because he was looking for any reason to not uh, depart from Elijah Muhammad emotionally because he saw Elijah as his father. After all, Elijah Muhammad changed his life, reformed him completely. In his eyes, he was responsible for so many, in in his mind, Malcolm X's mind, so many things that came from Malcolm X's life after prison. He attributed to Elijah Muhammad's forbearance and kindness. So he did not want to believe it and he emotionally struggled with it. But the departure came at the point, according to Malcolm X, where he realized that, he, where he felt like he was not even sure if Elijah Muhammad believed what he was telling the nation of Islam in terms of the idea that the white man is the devil, that he's the messenger of Allah, that God is going to return in the next 20 years to throw on black people and trash white Americans. He said once he realized that Elijah Muhammad did not believe this doctrine by himself, it, 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 on his own accord, let alone uh, the, um, um, uh, the sexual assault, the sexual allegations, the sexual infidelity allegations, that's when he knew that he didn't belong with the nation and he had to leave. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And like I said, we'll do an episode on the NOI because have you heard of um, the, the the founder of this, Wallace D. Fired, Fired, I think, is his name. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, yeah.
1: Have you
0: have you heard have you heard stories about this guy? Yes, no, I have. Um, I have. I know. I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know a, few, a, a bit about it. You, you know what I'm. You know what I'm getting at, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Maybe I do. Wait, what are you getting at? The
1: this fella, right, was basically the creator or the founder of the Nation of Islam. Was yeah. A, a, apparently, right, according to the FBI. Now look you can argue that maybe this was put out to disparage the name of the nation, but apparently was a black New Zealander um, by the name of Wallace D. Ford. Yeah. yeah. Who was um, masquerading, he was a very light-skinned black man, and he was masquerading as a white person for most of his life until he founded this. And apparently he left the nation after um somebody who I'm trying to get it here I have the exact after somebody within the nation um attempted a human sacrifice and wow. w- when this went wrong and when the police came after him beat this basically this wallace d Ford basically just bounced and disappeared and Yeah wow had, and apparently at the time up for about 20 years afterwards was one of the most expensive searches that the FBI ever carried out. Wow. Because they, <laughs> they were desperately trying to find this guy because this fella just disappeared off the face of the earth yeah. um, and had been masquerading as a white person for the
0: first 25, 30 years of his life. Wow. I, I definitely didn't know of his early actions in terms of um <laughs> uh, him pretending to be a white person, but I do know that the the last part about him disappearing is true, and Elijah Muhammad actually told this to Malcolm X when he first uh, introduced uh, uh, rhetorically the figure of um, uh, Fard to to Malcolm X that he disappeared. I believe the story was that he was chased by jealous members of the nation or something, or people who wanted to get him uh, for reasons of envy and jealousy. I can't I, this is paraphrasing very rough, probably inaccurate yeah. paraphrasing. But oh, then he disappeared. So I, I was aware of that, yeah. but I didn't know the empirical data on his uh, yeah, life. <laughs> now, the,
1: the New Zealand bit is, is more than speculation, but not exactly fact. So it's, it's, 90, it's about 90% confirmed. But the part about him basically skipping town after this human sacrifice went wrong is fact. This is exactly, like there was a massive invest, investigation into the Nation of Islam after this. Um and I think they basically disavowed the the guy who tried to carry it out, and um, Elijah Muhammad got away with it, but Wallace D. Ford basically had to had to skirt.
0: Yeah, I I I'll say just uh, as we transition into talking about what occurred uh, in Malcolm's life and what he did before he after leaving the Nation of Islam. I think it's very important to talk about what I would say is probably one of, if not the most defining uh, moments in Malcolm X's life. And that, of course, is his trip to Mecca. Um, Whilst he was in the kind of limbo period with the Nation of Islam, uh, very briefly, he went to Mecca. um, You know, the religious pilgrimage that many followers of Islam partake in. Um, And it's very hard to get to Mecca. Uh, and he didn't, of course, speak Arabic, so it was more hard for Malcolm X to get to Mecca relative to the ordinary orthodox Muslim. When he went to Mecca, anyways, he got him because of connections that he had. Uh, he kind of documents his experience in Mecca uh, or his experiences with getting to Mecca um, in his autobiography. But when he got there, he was astonished. Uh, and I, I'm going to maybe stick to what he what he perceived or observed in terms of race relations in Mecca that really changed his philosophy, the philosophy that we've referred to throughout this podcast that was established when he was a child and developed all the way through his his life. He really changed and usurped that philosophy in an unimaginable way for Malcolm X pre-Mecca. He went to Mecca and he saw white people, black people, Arabic people, people of all backgrounds, colors and creeds, sit down, hug each other, kiss each other, drink from the same cup, and pray in harmony with one another, as if they were brothers. And this was something that Malcolm X actually wrote about in a a letter that he wrote in Mecca, a very eloquent, riveting, moving letter, actually, that he sent to, I believe, his family whilst he was there. And he talks about how he had never, ever seen anything like this before, and he never thought anything like this was possible. Malcolm X also ideologically moves away from the nation of Islam, because he realizes that many people within the world of Islam, the Arabic world, they repudiated the nation of Islam. They saw the nation of Islam as um, um, a sin. As I'm trying to think of the Ara- Arabic term, ah, there's an Arabic term for it, um, halal, uh, not no, ah, it'll come to me. But they saw it as a sin. And Malcolm X talked about how this was a departure from Orthodox Islam. This is not what Islam is about. Islam does not subscribe to the idea that white people are devils and that black people are supreme. This is not what Islam teaches. It's, it teaches brotherhood for people of all backgrounds. And this actually saw Malcolm X concluding, because this and this really speaks to, again, the human condition. The only time he saw white people and black people live in harmony as brothers, loving one another, brothers and sisters, was when he went to Mecca, when Muslims were interacting with one another through the ceremony of prayer. So he concluded that America needs Islam because Islam is the way that will truly solve the racial problem within America. This speaks to the fact, of course, that the only time he's seen black people and white people successfully cooperate with one another is in Mecca. So naturally, his conclusion is that this is what is needed uh, for us to go forward. So this is a very fascinating um, development in his life, and it really came to shape, I think, the final uh, construction or iteration of Malcolm's philosophy on race relations.
1: Absolutely, and I think it's definitely something... um... (laughs) It's something that's kind of neglected nowadays when people talk about Malcolm X. Absolutely. I think you said it already that it's when people talk about Malcolm X and what he believed, it's kinda of up about as far as say, you know, nineteen sixty two. And anything after that mm-hmm. is is almost seen as irrelevant. But like you said already, he had this kind of epiphany where he began to move away from the um the segregationist teachings of the nation of Islam and mm. more towards um, like if the Brotherhood of Humanity idea that you've so eloquently painted. Mm. Um, but I suppose we'll probably leave it there. Like I said already, we're going to do, I'm going to yeah. do a separate episode on the death of Malcolm X. But Eric, to finish it off, do you think that Malcolm X should be considered an icon? Oh,
0: uh, we thought that... Um I think he's had um,
1: even, even, even considering you know his early life, his crimes, the racketeering, the pimping, oh, the drug dealing. I think,
0: um, I think that merely adds to the reason uh, of why he should be considered an icon. Um, I think Malcolm X's life. There's so much that every single person can take from it. Whether one agreed with him politically, whether one agreed with his early or late strategies when it came to race relations. As a human being I don't think I'll, I don't think any of us can sit back look at him and not be astonished with his development how he changed from that pimp that racketeer uh that drug dealer into being one of the most revolutionary one of the most profound and impactful um human rights activists in the 20th century and uh, in recent human history I, I think it's simply astonishing and it speaks to our capacity to grow as human beings it speaks to the complexity of the human condition Uh, It speaks to the nuance that we have to allow to seep through our lens that we use to analyze human beings in this world. Um, And and Sean, honestly, I'll substantiate and support what you said about people looking at Malcolm X for earlier iterations of his persona. If we're going to appreciate a historical figure, we have to appreciate them in their entirety, the good, the bad, the negative, the positive. And I think when we take from them, you know, what we want to take to define them, or to act, at least perceive who they truly were, it's best to take them when they are at the most mature point. You know, I, I don't think you'd like a shawl being judged for what you did when you were thirteen, eleven, twelve. So let's say things that are undesirable that you did back then.
1: I definitely would want. To be, I definitely would want to be judged for my beliefs when we first started yeah. talking. Yeah, anyway. exactly.
0: Sure. So I think we should. Use the same tolerance and understanding to treat the figure of Malcolm X. We can appreciate what he said throughout his life, but before he died, uh, a philosophical revolution occurred in his uh, frame of reference, and that is to be appreciated. So he is an icon. He's had an unquantifiable impact across the world, Africa included. Uh, And, of course, there's more you can get into in terms of his Pan-Africanist teaching before he died, Uh, but he's an icon. And I think the more we learn about our icons, the more we learn about ourselves, and the potential that we have to uh, live up to our own purpose and potential and um, calling in the future, in our future.
1: I absolutely agree with you. I think that he's a fantastic uh, redemption story. It's a fantastic kind of, you know, a man who was stood on multiple times by life, being given a second chance and making good of that second chance. And once he comes out, he... He is, he is a shining light, mm. I think, within the nation of Islam. I, I don't agree with everything they, they mm. teach. Like I said already, I think there's certain aspects are very commendable, very respectable, certain aspects mm. not so much. But like we said already, nuance. You have to look at both sides yeah. you to be able to kind of go, you know, oh, okay, he, he was a human. and, and know, sure. he, made, he made mistakes.
0: Yeah. I was, but, I was going to say, and the bravery and courage, and just the. Uh, The, the gallantry he had to show to depart from the nation of Islam, but this was all he knew. After his stint at jail, all he knew was the nation of Islam. So to have enough moral conviction to leave all you've known because you know that it's wrong, you know, it takes a very strong, noble human being to be able to do that, uh, and to, to, you know, begin your own voyage to find yourself and to find your own beliefs. And Malcolm X, before he died, actually felt quite marginalized in his autobiography. He said that, on the one hand, the racial extremists like the likes of the nation, but other activists beyond the nation, they thought that he was softening up, that he was becoming too meagre. And on the other hand, the non-violent tradition embodied by the likes of King thought that he was too much of an extremist. So he felt like he didn't fit in, which is uh, I think is an interesting way to kind of picture him and where he was on that kind of spectrum. Yeah, he he
1: he kind of got stuck in the middle, really. It's kind of... and. Um... What I've heard about kind of hit the relationship between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X was that he had reached out multiple times to um, to King, but I think kind of the attitude was, "Hey, look, your thing blew up in your face." Yeah, Yeah, stay away from what I what I've got going on. In
0: fact, actually, he did reach out to King uh, multiple times, but he also had, before he passed away, the opportunity to speak. Martin Luther King's Baptist Church. Now, King was not there at this time. I think it was at a demonstration, or I think it was a political convention he was at. But King's wife, Coretta Scott King, was there. Uh, and Malcolm X spoke to the audience. Uh, and he knew that this recording, this speech would be recorded, the, the speech at King's Baptist Church. And he whispered in King's wife's ear, apparently, that I'm going to let them know that if they do not follow your husband's approach, I'm going to, like, and, and I think this really beautifully speaks to the duality of the civil rights movement, the Malcolm X and the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Neither would have been as successful without the other. He said to Colonel Scott King, I'm going to speak to them and let them know that they better accept what your husband is saying because they don't want the alternative. And he got up there and it wasn't an extremist yes. speech per se, but he was talking about self-defense. And I think this kind of point of introspection to know it's, it's nearly like an implicit acknowledgement that what King is saying, it's good for all of us, because I'm okay with them accepting this. And I let them know that they're better, because the alternative is something that they don't want. This really, really is important. Yeah, like I go heard, on, sorry, go on, Shanza. I
1: heard it put, I heard it put very um, in quite a funny manner that you can imagine kind of going, look, the most that this fella here... You know, the most that Martin Luther King is willing to do is walk over a bridge. And that's the absolute furthest he's willing to go. You don't even want to know how far I'm willing to. There we go. go. That seemed to kind of be the attitude
0: he was trying to put forward. Uh-huh. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. look, we'll leave it there, Eric. Yeah, perfect. Thanks so much, Sean. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank, thank you so much for coming on, Eric. It's been an absolute
0: pleasure. Yeah. No, thanks so much. It's been great. Uh, a great honor. And hope I get to come back sometime.
1: Definitely. We'll have to have you on again. Perfect. See you later, show. Take it easy, fella. Good man. Thank you. I want to once again give a massive thanks to Eric for coming on. He's someone who introduced me first to Malcolm X, and he has an absolute wealth of knowledge on the topic. Secondly, I want to give a massive thanks once again to Kieran Rain for the intro music you hear at the start. And lastly, a massive thanks to you all for tuning in. If I could just remind you to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcast if you're enjoying the show, that would be great. It really helps boost the profile of the show. Apple seemed to love that shit. And finally, if you would follow us on the socials, on Twitter and on Instagram, and eventually TikTok as well, at the underscore dead, underscore icons, underscore podcast. This month, it's going to be a really busy one in terms of recording. I think as to something like six or seven episodes lined up. And once that's done, they're going to be kind of let out in the same formula, the same format as they have been for the last little while. So there will be one big episode a month, and then hopefully one smaller one a month. There's definitely going to be one smaller, if not two smaller ones coming this month. Um, not only because there's so much, uh, because it's our um, Black History Month, but there's so much to talk about on this topic with Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam that there will probably be other episodes on Elijah Muhammad and other figures within that organization eventually. But there's going to be two episodes, one on Malcolm X's assassination and another smaller one, which you will find out about soon enough, hopefully. So I will leave you off, lads, and we'll chat to you later. Good luck.